1: Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Outlook on Radio Western, uh, 94.9 CHRW. And today we have another guest. Looking forward to this one.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We actually had a guest um, quite a few weeks ago now, I think, from Colorado. And I believe our guest today is still living in Colorado.
2: That is correct.
1: So she's known on the Internet as theblindhistorylady.com. That's where you can find out a lot more about her and uh, got a lot of interesting information on that website. But yeah, you've done a lot of other things and we want to get in right into that. Uh, so thank you, Peggy, for joining us.
0: Yeah, we really appreciate <laughs> having you on the show and um, yeah, it's just great to have some information on history for the blind because as we we all know, it's not talked about enough. So this is a great opportunity to discuss this topic well
2: thank you for having me and the reason I got into blind history was for the very thing you just said there isn't a lot of history about blind people and I have I've grown up in the blind community all my life I was born blind and I came from a family where my mother was blind she had gone to the North Dakota school for the blind I knew many blind adults who were rug weavers, piano tuners, door-to-door salesmen. When I got to be my late teens and 20s, I was somewhat embarrassed by them because they did the old stereotype blind guy jobs. And I I thought to myself, you know, they haven't they haven't done much with their lives. When uh, I was uh, a little older, still thinking I knew everything. I was given the task of cleaning out the files of the National Federation of the Blind of Minnesota. I know many of your viewers are uh, familiar with the National Federation of the Blind in the United States.
1: I was just going to say that the um, somewhat read up on you and what I figured when I heard about you is you can really tell your positive and forward-thinking philosophy and all these years and, and everything you've been doing. So that's sort of what we've been really learning more about for our own our own um, lives and our own history here in Canada. So that's why we are glad to have you here. And that's sort of what we like to talk about when we can on the show.
0: And that's also how we would have, we've connected in the first place was through our involvement here in Canada with the Canadian Federation of the Blind, we attended our first NFB convention a couple of years ago in Orlando, and then just getting involved in these organizations organized by blind people, you start to meet more blind people. And Carrie and I grew up in integrated into public school. So growing up, we knew a few blind people, but not that many. So this has really opened up our eyes to the world out there and how many blind people there are um, and connecting with so many, including including Peggy Chong here today. So.
2: Yes. And, you know, that's, I grew up in the public school system mostly because my mother had gone to the school for the blind and did not have a good experience there. So she wanted us, there's, um, I have three blind siblings and one-sided sibling. So (laughs) to me, you know, blindness was sort of normal. We knew all these blind people and as I grew older, I knew the blind lawyers and teachers and blind business people who own their own businesses so when I was given the task of cleaning out these old files um, I got the task because they said well you're going to know all the names in there because you know all the old people
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's what you think history is
2: (laughs) yeah I didn't think of that I didn't think of me as a historian at the time Um, I did not do well in school because I wasn't taught braille so reading was difficult and the older I got the print got smaller the less I read I didn't find it enjoyable to go to school and uh, to read and history I mean gosh what did that have to do with me anyway so um, I kind of sort of stumbled into a lot of this you might say but I started to read some of the material as I was throwing out these records And I came across a letter from the 1920s that talked about meeting with our blind congressman. And I thought to myself, no, wait a minute. I I didn't know there was a blind congressman. I knew there was one blind U.S. senator, but I did not know there was a blind congressman. So I put that aside. And that's kind of what I did. I started putting things aside uh, when I would find an interesting story about blind people from the past. I enjoyed uh, writing the little vignettes for the newsletters, you know, meet our chapter president or um, meet Evangeline Larson, um, our oldest board member or something to that effect. I would write those little articles for the newsletters because I enjoyed the people aspect of it. And when I got into uh, genealogy, I decided about the year 2000 that I was just for the winter gonna research my my family history I was gonna put a family tree together for my daughter and thought gee I should know a little bit more about these people Um, let me tell you that genealogy can be as addicting as chocolate and yeah yeah. uh, yeah. and I started attending classes to learn how to do it better Uh, as you probably well know a lot of things are not accessible when you start looking online for information uh, especially things that come from 100 to 200 years back because it's all pictures of the handwritten material which actually you know for a blind person wasn't too bad because I'd already learned to use readers and found out that one of the things that they taught me in some of my classes is that we had to learn how to use other people to do our research in other parts of the country Uh, ancestry.com was just getting started at the time and there are parts of it that are accessible um, but there are a lot of it that is not but anything you want to know the good stuff if you're really doing your family history you want to know about the good stuff that's not online that you have to go and hunt for.
0: I know these days that it's becoming more and more popular that people are going on to Ancestry.com and, and tracing back their family trees.
2: <laughs> yes, they are.
1: But forgive and, us like like our, our naivete here. What is the difference between an archivist and a genealogist? Is there distinctions there? Uh, yeah, there's quite a big difference. I'm, yeah. I'm
2: learning about archiving right now as well. Oh. Um only because I want it done and I'm the only one who wants to get it done, so I'm the one who gets to do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but an archivist is someone who preserves the documents. A genealogist is someone who's who's going through old documents to find particular articles, letters, um, artifacts, where an archivist is in charge of a particular set of documentation that they are going to preserve.
1: So you kind of piece it together and then hand it to an archivist to, um, do, you know, document, put together. And for genealogists,
2: you are your own archivist. Right. Uh, putting it <laughs> into your own, yeah. whatever your database. Um, for me, it's sadly, it's a bunch of boxes, but... Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I learned a lot about how to go about researching blind people through these classes I took for genealogy. So when I get stumped on my family history, I started to pull out some of those old things that i had been collecting over the years and use some of the same techniques uh, to research them, sometimes learning new techniques because of my research on blind people. And after a while, the, the paper accumulated. Um, if there's one thing I have learned is just because it's on the Internet today doesn't mean it's going to be on the Internet tomorrow. So if you want to keep a copy of it, you should print. Um, so I started to do that and piled up. And pretty soon my husband, he sort of said to me, you know, you either have to do something with this stuff or you got to get rid of it because it is cluttering up the den. So I started to do something with it. I started to uh, take some of the stories that I had written about people, turning them into articles, and tried to get them published. Most of the time, I heard from uh, history magazines, um, local newspapers, that's really, really nice. We enjoyed your article very much, but unfortunately, we don't have room to publish a novelty article at this time.
1: Novelty.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, novelty.
1: <laughs> because what we found online here is that, you know, we found where somewhere you said that in these schools for the blind and their records, they had more recorded about the teachers who are usually pretty much sighted um, for a lot of the time, more than the blind students themselves. <laughs>
2: I don't know. That, you, you know, when I when I thought about putting this articles together, the first place I started to go to were the biennial reports of the schools for the blind and so on. And that was true. At the end of the reports, mostly they would have a memorial to so and so the board member who passed away and left the school with a thousand dollars, which back in 1890 would have been a great deal of money. Or they would honor in their newsletters some of their donors or the society women who helped put things together for the Christmas party or who um, hosted a public relations event and so on. There would be information about uh, the older the biennial reports, there would be more specific data as the biennial reports come into like the nineteen. 30s and 40s and 50s they get very vague about people's names and so on really um yeah I guess privacy you know too bad um but I couldn't find out in many of them what happened to their students I could find their student rosters um in several states there would be like a anniversary issue if you will of the annual report where the legislature had said to the school for the blind tell us how our money has been spent has it been worthwhile what are your graduates doing and they would have that information in there and that was very helpful Um, I had the good fortune to get into some of the Iowa school's uh, records before they were packed up um, and sent somewhere, the school for the blind in Iowa closed as a school uh, several years ago. But they had records going back to the 1850s.
1: Yeah, because we were going to ask, like, what who's the who are the oldest blind people you've sort of discovered in your in your explorations? How, bar, how oh, far back are we going here? Oh, there's a few of them from
2: the 1700s that are fascinating. Uh, one of them was not able to exactly fight in the civil war although he he certainly uh would have been considered a soldier if you will um and uh, he was he was an interesting gentleman because he had several wives um he traveled a lot and back then you know you couldn't just you know take that six hour drive over to so and so uh in another state you ended up being there for a year or two so you have one family here one family there uh, his family tree was rather interesting to explore because different parts of the family argue uh, about who's related to who I've found a gentleman who was blinded in the late 1700s his father was a shoemaker and taught his son how to be a shoemaker which actually shoemaking was a considered an occupation for blind people uh back around the 1800s as you were sitting still you know you weren't going anywhere it was a sort of a stationary type job you were working with your hands uh so they figured that was a good occupation for a blind person even though you were using sharp tools nobody seemed to think that was a big issue then um but he uh, he turned out to be a tavern owner and it was a tavern and an inn and to this day the blind man's tavern in pennsylvania is standing on the spot where the blind man's tavern was back in the 1830s and 40s uh, which i thought was just fascinating that his legacy has lived on for you know century and a half almost two centuries now and I don't think he would have ever imagined that to be the case. He was just a tavern owner trying to support his family.
1: It's funny, I was just in Pennsylvania uh, the end of last year, kind of before all this stuff hit going on in the world right now, but um, I would have <laughs> liked to know that then. I, I'd interesting and tra- I like to travel uh, for a purpose and, and that includes history in a big way, so.
2: I have found it
1: interesting to find
2: all the little spots where blind people have made a difference. Um, there's a place in California that was owned by the crime boss of San Francisco, who was a blind guy. He never owned. He never was a public servant. He never was elected to any office. But if you wanted to get elected to an office in San Francisco, you had to have his blessing. And. And he, anyway, he um, retired, if you will, and bought this property in California, and it's a, a public park, basically. Right now, uh, the house is still there. You can have a go to Christmas teas there, and so on. And I put that in an article that I wrote for Dialogue Magazine on summer travels and hitting all the high spots if you were a blind person Uh, like in Wisconsin the founder of the Wisconsin State Journal was a blind and a deaf man and he is one of the characters that they have uh, by his graveside they have a man who pretends to be him has a uh, ear horn and talks about the founding of the Wisconsin State Journal and his life and so on. And you can go and visit his grave. It's, it's a, actually a tourist attraction there. Uh, there was a gentleman uh, in Michigan who was a sighted guy for um, many years working in uh, concrete. Um, he was an engineer. His father talked him into coming back to his hometown and teaching chemistry at the University of Michigan. He was teaching class one day and his student was having some difficulty. So he went over to look at the student's experiment and it blew up in his face causing his blindness. He was back a week later teaching class he wanted to serve in the army during the First World War, but they didn't let blind people serve in the in the military. What he ended up doing was working with the army, him and his students, to develop a more uh, intense formula for concrete to make it far more stable, drying quicker, so that the military could use. concrete that they were developing to go and build um, better shelters uh, help with building bridges things like that so he is responsible for making our concrete a far more stable and stronger building structure Um, I have written about him as well if you go to www.smashwords.com I have self-published um, several of my uh, lar- larger pieces at Smashwords, and you can download them in a variety of formats. Um, sighted people can download them for their nooks and stuff like that. Blind people can load them, download them as a text or a Word file and read them that way as well. So you can always uh, go to Smashwords and get some of my books that I have written. I also have a monthly email list, and I send out an email about once a month, and I keep them short. The ones on Smashwords are a lot longer, Uh, but my monthly emails are about a 1,000 words or so. I highlight an individual each month that I have researched and talk about something that was interesting in their life. I have uh, been doing that for about four years and I have enough subject matter probably to go on for another 15 uh, years with this if I can if I can keep affording to do it. <laughs> um, but I love to tell these stories about these, what I call our blind ancestors.
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah, we were checking out actually on, on your website and in the, um, the favorites section, you posted a few of the stories that were favorites of people and um, one that kind of stuck out that I just wanted to, get your thoughts on a little bit and tell our listeners a bit about um, this, this guy named blind, they called blind Jim back in uh, quite a while, quite a, over a century ago, I think.
2: I believe you're referring to Jim Ivey, who was on uh, the uh, campus of Mississippi state. He was a very interesting person to research. One of the things I do is to reach out uh, to their descendants Jim Ivey didn't have descendants to reach out to but I found some of his great nieces and nephews and they were very eager to talk to me about and very open to talk to me about their great uncle Jim Ivey Jim was born from slaves and grew up in a religious setting he was Somewhat educated, uh, as much as a black person could be in Mississippi at the time, and that was through his church that they got most of their education reading the Bible and so on. He was building bridges, um, lost his sight, and didn't know what to do with his life, so he started to sell peanuts on the street. They were not kind to a blind a peanut seller um, in Mississippi and he, he just kept, kept on doing what he was doing. This was just making enough money for him to live and that's all you can say about it. He didn't have a, a decent place to live outside of living with his mother. Um, but one day he walks onto the campus of Ole Miss and is selling his peanuts Old Miss is losing. It's a home game, and he's um, watching the game, finds out that they're losing. So he starts yelling for the home team. He has this big, booming voice, very rich, and the team wins. All of a sudden, the team just comes out from behind and wins. They dubbed him that day the good luck charm for Old Miss football team, and he was allowed to sell peanuts on campus. We're talking around 1900 here. We're not talking fancy uh, vending location like you would think of today or a stand inside. He did not get a place to sell his uh, wares inside um, till about 1940, actually. He sold in the winter, didn't matter what. He sold his peanuts and if he had other things, he could sell candy, whatever he would have. But peanuts were his primary uh, sales item to the students. He became the uh, freshman mascot, if you will. And what he, he was a philosopher, you might say, of life. Not only was he selling his peanuts, but he was also working hard in his church, and he became a, a minister in his church as well counselor leader of his church he became sort of the counselor of the freshman students that were coming into old myth now about 1923 or four a tailor was on campus fitting the freshmens for their uh suits and so on he sees jim ivy and this is supposed to be the the mascot for Old Miss freshman class, and he's just shabbily dressed. This tailor embarrasses the school, puts articles in the newspaper, and gets a few other people to do so. They raise money to purchase a, a really nice suit for Jim Ivey. Every year after that, the freshman class bought Jim Ivey a suit. Um, he appeared at... Every football game that Old Miss had and many of the other sports teams as well he traveled with the team as their good luck charm but Jim couldn't stay in the hotels that the football team stayed in he had to find another hotel for black people he had to eat in different restaurants he couldn't even eat on campus with the students but in the 1940s when there were open lynchings going on, when they would have four and 500 people at a lynching as a big party, if you will. And of course, nobody ever knew who was ever there, so nobody was ever arrested, which is just, it makes you really angry when you read about that. And then you look at the Black Lives Matter movement today and people questioning why there's a Black Lives Matter movement. You can, you can just see by reading history How angry they must be inside and yet handle their movement in such a professional way without so much anger or hostility. I know some people would say that that's not true, but I think if we as white people were treated that way, we would have rioting in far more than just a little bit here and a little more there. But anyway, so... So we've got Jim Ivey, who is at that time, as these lynchings are happening, and actually one of his cousins was lynched in the 1940s. Um, he is sitting in the bleachers surrounded by the white cheerleaders. A black man is, is, is accepted to do that. And is he accepted as a black man because they really like him or do they see him? As non threatening because he's blind. He got away with going into professors' offices, sitting at their desks, putting his feet up on their desk, having his picture taken for the campus newspaper like that. No other black man, if a janitor had done that, he would be fired or lynched. Um, But Jim Ivey could get by with it. And there are a few papers that, if you troll around on the internet, you can find. Where some people talk about how he was a traitor or he was um, just seen as a a puppet of the white people, uh, a traitor to his own race. I do not, I don't know that I would believe that Um, he got special privileges because he was blind. Did he take advantage of his blindness He probably did take advantage of his blindness because it got him a lot further than had he not been, uh, had not taken advantage of his blindness. Now, he had a nice suit and the photographs of him, especially from the 1940s and 50s, he's dressed very well. Yet he had a very shabby house because he didn't make that much money selling peanuts. So he almost lost his house at one time. And again, it was someone shaming Old Miss students and graduates that helped put together enough money for him to pay off the mortgage on his house. What I found interesting, too, is that he had two funerals when he passed away. At the same church, it was his church. It was a black church. The first funeral was for the white people. The head of Ole Miss, the faculty, the trustees, the alumni, they all came to that funeral. And after the white people left, the black people had their funeral.
1: Right. Those were uh, times.
2: Right. <laughs> but he was very much loved by his family, by his church, very well respected in his church. He was a leader of his church. Uh. He was a leader of the black community and inspired especially his nephews and nieces to become better, get a better education and so on. So, as a black man, he was definitely a leader. As a blind man, he did not seem to have much in common with other blind people. He didn't seem to have much contact with other blind people. Right. But...
1: I That's know, what we all, definitely. we all, we all are, we like to talk about that because like we said, we didn't either, but you know, what a fascinating man from such a different t- time period. Absolutely.
2: I think he's a really great person to study for yeah. many, many reasons.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. I, and I thought, especially right now with, we've been discussing intersectionality on our show a lot recently and with the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think this story, we just really, we really touched, touched me to read the last night. And I think. It's one of these people from history we need to talk about more and more people need to know about, along with, obviously, so many others. Along but, um, with, you know,
1: like Helen Keller. That's what we all know of, but who looks below so many that
0: surface? beneath the surface. But we're coming up here on our halfway point. So thank you so much, Peggy Chong, for being on the show today, The Blind History Lady. Find her at theblindhistorylady.com. And we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back today on Outlook.
1: Welcome back to Outlook this Monday morning. We are talking with the blind history lady today, and she is joining us from Colorado. We're talking about, I guess, what I read online is the trace, the traceable blind, which, like you've said, wasn't always wasn't always at the top of any history book's table of contents. Um, but and you know of Helen Keller, but we'd like to talk about others here. So thanks for joining us.
0: We were kind of curious. Obviously, American history is is your main area of study, but we were we were curious if you do any um, have done any research for around the world or any other countries, um, Canada specifically in our case because we're Canadian, but um, just in general.
2: I have not focused on that area, but Canadians and especially the top tier of the United States, the states there, had a lot of going back and forth, of course. Especially um, 1830s, 40, 1840s, 50's, 60's, you had uh, one or two Canadians going to uh, Perkins by the 1880s, um, New York, Ohio. Uh, they had Canadian students there. I have a gentleman that I have done some research on from Utah who was born in Canada went to the School for the Blind in Ohio, went back to Canada, uh, became a Mormon, and then went to Utah. And this gentleman, he made brooms and brushes, which is another stereotypical job you think of for blind people to do. However, he lived in the uh 1840s 50s 60s 70s 80s and so on he went to the school for the blind in ohio in 1850s he was taught the brush making trade his father and brother uh also made brushes when they went back to canada they all worked in a factory making brooms and brushes so he was a blind man in a factory of sighted people making brooms and brushes and so on when he moved to utah he was making brooms and brushes and so on um he was well well skilled with his hands the ohio school for the blind at that time when he attended the school we would today think of as probably being more like child abuse uh however they have the students doing physical work, doing mending, building furniture, um, repairing the um, walls for the garden. Whatever had to be done, they didn't have the money to hire it done. They had the children do it. These children at the schools for the blind who didn't have a lot of money in the first like 10, 20 years of that school learned a lot of handcraft tool trades. Uh, They learned how to build things. They learned how to repair things. They would go and build their own houses afterwards. They could build their own furniture, they would build toys selling and selling toys. Some of them had stores where they would build or craft um, ornaments, toys, little um, kitchen tools and so on and sell them. Today we wouldn't have our kids do that as part of their curriculum, doing the chores that should be done by a maintenance person. Yet they learned those skills and were able to go out into the community and put those skills to work in factories with sighted people. I found it interesting when I got a hold of the 1910 census. Uh, there's a large piece of it that evaluates blind people because in the 1910 census for the United States, they they had tried to take. Uh, count of people who were disabled many times uh, this census they made a point of not only having it as an item where you self-declare whether or not you're blind or deaf but the census taker if he found more people he got a little more money if he found more people who were in those other categories so there was an incentive not only for self-declaring that you have a disability but the census taker then could also check off that you were blind or disabled many of the blind people did not want to choose to declare themselves as blind um, for a variety of reasons many of them I may never know but that census helped a lot in finding some of the blind people there Uh, and tracking them, getting their proper ages and so on through that census. Um, And that census also showed that there was only about a little over 30% of the blind population that were not self-supporting, that blind people were self-supporting, they were not on public assistance, that they had some kind of employment. I found that fascinating given the employment statistics that we have today. The jobs that blind people had back then were farming. Uh, That was primarily the jobs that blind people were occupied in. They either owned or worked on farms, worked on their family farm. Um, They lived in conditions that probably would not be considered healthy today, that they lived in very shabby homes Uh, it's all they could afford but it was their home they paid for their food and so on they raised their children without public assistance Uh, so we had a higher percentage of employment um, maybe not out of poverty but still they were employed working at some job with sighted people many of them also working in their own business that they had created themselves
1: yeah a lot like what you see today you know just in a different way obviously but yeah I mean it I guess academics weren't as prized uh fairly around that time as they would be later if for
2: blind people if you were born blind you stood a chance of an education not necessarily, but you stood a chance of a good education better than your siblings because more and more states, as the decades progressed, made it mandatory for sending your blind child to, a public, to the school for the blind. However, many still did not get that kind of an education. If you were 17, 18, 19, 20 years old and went blind, you might be able to go to the school for the blind and learn some blindness training. But if you were 25 years old and went blind, there was nothing for you in the United States of America to get training as a blind person. There was no rehab program, not until the First World War. There, if there were blind workshops where you could go, Philadelphia had them, several, several states had them. And you could be a broom maker. You could be taught that skill. But there was nothing that taught you to read and write Braille. If you did that, you did it on your own. There was no travel training unless you got it from another blind person who helped you walk back and forth to your apartment from the shop. That's if you didn't live in the, the broom shop. Many of the broom shops were actually homes for the blind. Um. So there wasn't an opportunity to get training. If you got training, you got it on your own. There wasn't an educational program to learning to read and write, although I am amazed at how many blind people did send off for a course and learned to read and write New York Point or Braille by themselves and in a lot quicker um, timeline than many say today that they need In order to read and write braille, I have documentation of blind people in their 60s who had gone blind in their 60s and learned to read and write braille enough after six months that they could actually read minutes at a meeting of other blind people. Or that they could read a story to the other people in the group or at their Sunday school or they could read from the Bible at their church. And today, we have people taking so long to just read 40 words a minute. Um, you know, it just is really interesting to me, the mindset and how that can affect how fast we do or do not learn.
1: Right.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's, and it's so different. It's hard to, hard to relate to that because it's a constant discussion on our show. Carrie and I are both avid Braille readers, and it's something that we are very serious about and worry today about a lot of discussion about phasing braille out because of technology and voiceover and all of this stuff. But it's just, it's, it's something that is very concerning and I, I, uh, it's, it's hard to relate when you are born blind and you've learned braille from such an early age. But like you say, it's, it's one of those skills that could be picked up faster and, and the, the, the mindset is a big part of it. Um, one other blind Canadian, well, or at least a blind person who was born in Canada mm-hmm but spent most of his life in the United States was Dr. Jacobus Tenbrook. And I thought maybe you could speak a little bit about him for our listeners. We've done a bit of research ourselves, but... um.
2: Yes, Dr. Tenbrook, as you know, is the founder of the National Federation of the Blind and came to California, attended the School for the Blind and became um, a student of Dr. Newell Perry. Tenbrook became a lawyer and went to law school in chicago attended the first convention of the national federation of the blind that was held in pennsylvania and became its first president tenbrook was a man who spoke very eloquently i never met him Um, i have heard lots of his recordings and have read many of his materials and the writings that he um that he put out there for people to read generations to come but also some of the letters that he has written back and forth to many of the people that I have been researching or that have I have touched and he always was somebody who remembered who you were he he always felt that it was important for him to help other people. Um, he would reach out to people, give them advice. Um, they would ask him, you know, questions, and he would spend great deal of time answering people's letters. Here's a guy who's a college student and then a beginning attorney, and he would spend Entire Sundays just writing letters to people he didn't even know, telling him, telling them little bits of what he might know about a particular area of um, owning your own business. But then also, he spent a good deal of time connecting people. He not only would say to them, Well, here's what I know, but he would say, Here's a person in such and so a state. I think you should contact them. He was somebody who helped everyone network and pull it together. Uh, I found him to be very inspirational in just in how he treated people. When you read his writings, especially those, um, the laws and torts and so on, he's very scholarly the first time I read some of that stuff, I was in my early 20s and it just went whoop right over my head. I had to sit and concentrate on every word because he was using such big words I had never heard of. I had to go and look up some of the words reading his stuff. But then you read his letters and they're just so personal. They're so conversational, so warm and inviting and friendly. Uh, He must have just been a fascinating man to have um, gotten to know personally. The people that he brought up, that he touched when they were children, when they were young adults um, looking for advice, Um, the cited attorneys who know him today and just are fascinated that such a man could write the laws write the arguments to promote those laws to support those laws and have those arguments so pertinent today as they were back in the 40s and 50s and 60s when he was writing it
1: because we kind of wonder like we grew up knowing there was a school for the blind not far from us here in Ontario in Brantford. But when he grew up and he had his accident and lost his sight between four, uh, I think age seven and eight, four, age fourteen, his mom decided they would move to the, the U.S. for him to go to school. Why do you think? I don't know if you've ever thought about that question, but what do you think?
2: I don't really know why they moved if it was specifically for him or not, California had a very good reputation already, uh, their school for the blind. And they were cranking out graduates who were going on to great professions. They had the attention of of the continent, I guess, um, in some respects. Other schools for the blind, however, would have been, just as good. Uh, If they were coming here to the United States for his education, I am some surprised they wouldn't have chosen uh, Perkins, the Perkins Mm. School for the Blind.
1: Right, different
2: coast. Different coast, for sure. But it had had the longest reputation.
0: I just find it interesting because um, speaking of, uh, just briefly, a couple more Canadians. um, There's a Canadian, uh, Philip Layton, and I don't know if you've heard of him at all. but he founded the uh, the Montreal Association for the blind back in 1908 um, and this was founded on his individual initiative and uh, is is it pretty an example of the grassroots organizations that we're working on here in Canada uh, like the, with the Canadian Federation of the blind and most people haven't heard of Philip Layton here in Canada and just yeah
1: they've heard of it they heard of his. they've heard of Jack Layton politician here in Canada but you know um, this was pre-World War I, pre-CNIB the here in Canada, uh, and it sort of just seems like we wish we'd heard of them a long time ago, uh, but that's how it goes. an example
0: of people just getting overlooked, such important people. The
1: Minnesota
2: Organization of the Blind uh, was founded in 1919, and they had a lot to do with the Canadians from Montreal. They would attend each other's meetings from time to time. And the Minnesota Bulletin, which was started about 1930, had articles about what had gone on at the Canadian um, meeting, Uh, reports when they had gone to Canada to their meetings. And Canadians came to some of the Minnesota meetings as well. Um, Iowa, same thing. Uh, There was uh, a gentleman from Iowa. Iowa who came to Iowa when he was, oh, in his early teens. He was blind by that time already. His family came from Canada. Um, He went to the Iowa College for the Blind. That's what the School for the Blind was called back then. Um, Some of his family went back to Canada, and he stayed and did well. Some of his family stayed in Iowa, and pretty soon the rest of the family kind of navigated back to Iowa as well, since they were doing quite well in Iowa. Um, I have, uh, like I said, it Canada is not my focus. For sure. Although, right. When my husband and I went to Canada last fall, we took a cruise um, and we landed in Halifax and I needed to find a tour that would talk about the explosion in 1917 um, that that started much of the services for the blind in Canada. Um, I wanted to be there. I wanted to hear some of the history. We weren't there very long. Uh, it's just that's just one stop on your cruise, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. on to
2: the next. But thing, we are—we're going to plan in our future. Now we're supposedly retired with nothing to do, you know. <laughs> but we're um, going to be planning a trip—a cross-country train trip. And we're going to start in Halifax, but spend several days there so that I can poke around and see what I can find out about some of the people that have been blinded in that explosion in Halifax. And what happened to them? Where did they go after that explosion? What happened to them in 1927 and 1937 and 1947? Because several of them were children. So I'm sure they have left a story some of these people are very hard as as we've gotten into the 20th century, it's easier to trace people, but in the 19th century you these kids would graduate kids, they were many times in their 20s, they would leave the schools for the blind and you never found anything out about them ever again. Poof. They just sort of just fall few, off yeah. the map. They yeah. don't show up in census documents. They don't show up in, um, uh, you know, graveyards. They might have been put in a poor farm and buried in a pauper's grave, so there would be nothing, no trace of them. Um, some of the poor farms they didn't even take a full census of who was even there when there was a census taken. Um, so it's it's really hard, especially women. Um,
1: and so on. We were just learning about a few Canadian women, so we're gonna talk about more of that because um, here in Canada, um, we've just discovering National Federation, Canadian Federation of the Blind in the last few years, Brian and I, and we, as a group here in Canada, we definitely do wanna learn more about our own history like you have doing. so you're set a great example for all of that. Um, it's you. important for us to know our history for many reasons. We're often told
2: nobody's ever done that before, and that's so not true. And when you feel like you're the first person trying to do something, it can be overwhelming. When people are going blind in their 30s and 40s, they've got careers, and maybe they really want to go back to their careers, but they're told by rehab professionals, counselors, and so on, nobody's ever done that before. When there have been blind bankers, there's one in New Mexico when he died in the 1960s, he was one of the 25 richest men in the state. There have been blind doctors. There have blind, been blind electricians. There have been blind contractors who have built their own homes. Um, we don't know about those people because of, the, partly because of the nature of our minority status. We don't have that grandma to tell us that same story every Thanksgiving over and over and over <laughs> yeah. and over again.
0: It doesn't get passed along generation to generation.
2: We, yeah, we don't have that. And we have a lot of people going blind later in life. They don't... Learn about the early histories. We don't teach blind history in our schools for the blind or in our rehabilitation centers. And I think that would be very important to know, especially in this political climate right now, that we've had five blind U.S. congressmen, we've had two blind U.S. senators. Um, who talks about them? Do we talk about the inventions that blind people have made, the contributions they have made? The blind man who invented cruise control. Ralph Teeter invented cruise control. You can look that up on the Internet. The blind man who invented the window that pulls in for indoor cleaning. He did that because he was not only blind, but he was primarily deaf as well and he had gone blind from an explosion that had taken his hand and so by the time he was in his late 40s he was tired of climbing up the ladder to change the storm windows every winter you know how that is in Canada and so he said there's got to be a better way he and another blind guy invented this, this window that comes in pulls out you clean it put it back in and you don't have to climb up a ladder after he sold his patent to that that man never worked again a day in his life didn't need to um then there's you've heard of lennox china mr lennox was blind the last 20 years that he owned that company yet as a blind man he designed the china for the 1916 presidential white house we don't know about those things why don't we know about those things we should know about those things and those are the stories i want to part of the white house tour Yeah, where's the China? Yeah, where's the Lennox China? Um, I mean, if a a blind man can design these Lennox China figurines that were designed in the 19-teens, in the 1920s, how easy would it be to just be someone who is working at a machine that's pumping out all these things right and left in these factories today? It would be very easy to do that. But we don't know about those people because I think partly, especially with some of them, the press didn't really understand how a blind person could do that. So they just left out the blindness part.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, because we're talking a lot these days about the language used back then and even the stuff that carries over into now and how that how that can inf- affect things. People don't think it does. but
0: Yeah, our listener, Roger, actually had a, a question or more of a, um, just wanted a bit of a, and I look on, on that because it tied in really well to Mark Riccobono, the president of the NFB speech this year where he was focusing on words and sp- specifically the word blind. Um, so we were just kind of curious about the government and society over time and what words and phrases were used in the past yeah. and, and are used today yes. and just how, how, the, how you found that while researching all of this history.
2: Yes, you, you do need to be a little creative um, thinking about the language, uh, the sightless, Um, you have to use that word sometimes but you also need to understand that the definition of blindness back 150 years ago is different than the definition today we have a definition of blindness a legal definition in the united states of 2200 or less back in uh, 1850 we didn't have the equipment to measure that kind of thing if you had enough vision to get along Nobody thought of you as a blind person, so you were not considered a blind person unless you just couldn't get on anymore, had no vision or very little vision at all. So the definition of blindness has changed. Um, When I look at some of the people that have gone through the schools for the blind, they talk about how they got their sight back, yet they still couldn't read print very well, but they got their sight back. So also not just interpreting the language, but the definitions uh, of what blind meant and what the um, community considered. Um, Lack of sight. If I'm going to research somebody, I will be very creative in uh, how I will term uh, what I'm looking for. Um, and many times I will not use the word blind while looking for that person when it comes to looking for people who have very common names um, you can be you can be looking forever you have to target you know target what you're looking for but blind might not ever come up so what was their profession Um, where did they live if you've got any kind of information about that that's the best way to start honing in on some of these people and then you'll find that someone will have been very creative in letting you know in a newspaper article or in a family journal uh that even without his eyes, even without- Yeah, they won't use the word blind, sense.
0: they'll just hint around it his, somehow.
2: Yeah, his visuals, they will, they will dance around that word blind like you wouldn't believe. So using blind or sightless or whatever, that doesn't always hone it in. You have to be very creative in finding the little things in their lives.
1: Well, Peggy, this has been great. I mean, the whole hour has just flown by like it often does. And um, we could have you back again, uh, talk so much more. And, um, you know, definitely the Blind History Lady sticks in your head. So hopefully we'll get people checking you out online. And thank you. For if, if people want to
2: join my email list, they need to just send me an email at theblindhistorylady at gmail.com. That's theblindhistorylady at gmail.com.
0: Awesome. We'll, 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 be be we'll be signing up for sure. So
2: Terrific.
0: Find us on Twitter at OutlookCFB and on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.